Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Frosty Tap. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope you're having a good week and enjoying the easing of COVID-19 restrictions if you're in England. On this week's podcast, we'll be speaking to Ginny Elliott about her memories of her time with world and European champion Priceless. It was quite an amazing time and you dare hardly blink because you thought the the bubble was going to burst in in two seconds. Our news review will take a slightly different format to usual. I'm actually pre-recording this intro because I'm on a way on holiday the week this podcast comes out. So I'll be handing over to my horse and hound colleagues to keep you updated with a look at some top class dressage at Wellington CDI and more. Finally, the Royal Veterinary College's Andy Fisk Jackson and Rick Farr from Farr and Percy Equine are on hand to give us some veterinary expertise. This week, it's all about bone scans. A bone scan has been around for quite some time. It doesn't necessarily diagnose the condition. It's just saying in this region, there is something going on. So you know how this works. Zip up your coat and let's get started. I'm delighted to welcome today's podcast guest, the legendary Ginny Elliott. Ginny had an incredibly successful eventing career. She won five Burleys and three Badmintons and collected 18 senior championship medals, including five individual golds. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast, Ginny. Hello, Pippa. It's great to have you on. And we are going to talk today about the horse who really kick-started your career, the wonderful Priceless. Can you start by telling us how you first came to buy him? Well, it was mum and I, um, we sort of managed to survive by buying and selling young horses. And we had that little Jabonne who cost £35, um, who actually scraped round badminton. And he, he did the juniors as well. So I then slightly got the bug. So we went off and searched the papers, horse and hound, etc., and found um, an advert for two four-year-olds in Devon, which was down as Scott. And as my mother's Devonian anyway, we thought, oh, that, that sounds cool. So off we went. And uh, there was Priceless. He had done a bit of hunting as a four-year-old. And... He was, I think it was 900 quid. So I rode him and he seemed very nice. He had a a false curb and uh, we thought, oh dear, we're not sure about false curbs, whether they affect them or not. Or anyway, so I just said, well, listen, if he jumps the ditch straight away, we'll buy him. If he doesn't jump the ditch, we won't. Anyway, he jumped the ditch really well. And that was it, we bought him. And the false curb never was a problem because I suppose it was a false one rather than a real one. But um, it was all rather a sort of strange start in a funny sort of way. And what was he like when you got him home and started sort of training him and and working with him? I think the word willful comes to mind. (laughs) He um, absolutely wouldn't have a stick. He, you could carry a stick, but if you tapped him behind the girth, he just bucked. Um, and I do remember rather an important competition was European, no, Europeans at Burley. Um, there was a very big bullfinch uh, down a hill. We came down the hill to a very big bullfinch with a huge ditch in front. And I actually thought it was impossible, this fence. And I, by mistake, I gave him a tap behind the saddle and he did nothing but, he did about like four or five bucks. And this fence was looming, looming, looming. And thank God he eventually decided he needs to pay attention and uh, got into gear before the, the actual fence itself. But he just wouldn't have the stick. Um, he didn't mind you tapping him on the shoulder, but he absolutely wouldn't let you use a dressage stick, any stick. Gosh, so he, uh, he, he was quite indignant if, uh, if you gave him that sort of correction. Do you remember when he first sort of moved up to the top level? What was his first badminton or burley? Well, uh, innocence is bliss, isn't it? We actually ran him at, at what Bramham, as a six-year-old, it, now it's called a four-star, but then it was a three-star, and he won it. So it was bizarre to actually, A, run a six-year-old round Bramham, and B, you know, as the blue, 
he 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 actually won it. So we then thought, oh well, let's sort of see what happens next year. So we actually took him to Burley the following year. He didn't actually go to um, badminton. He went to Burley first. He was sixth there. Then at, then at badminton, he was eighth. But at Burley and badminton, we had quite a few time faults. And I think the general view from other people was that he was a bit common and we'd never do the time. So I thought, well, I've got to do something about this because he's got so much ability. Um, so I, I actually rang up Michael Dickinson because um, I met him a couple of times racing and I said, would you ever be able to help me try and get my horse much fitter? So we had a sort of deal. I helped him with some grid work and he gave me his secret fitness regime. So I changed his fitness completely from interval training to how racehorses get fit by using gallops twice a week. And then we incorporated hill work and that sort of thing. And the next time he, he went to a competition was uh, a big one was Horsens in, as a European and he had only 16 time faults and from then on he was pretty much inside the time at all his big championships so it was an interesting one to get a, a horse that was not really full of blood fit in the thoroughbred method so we sort of reverse it was a sort of reverse pivot and he, he was always on a very strict diet because he he looked at a carrot and he put on 10 pounds um, so we used to feed him four times a day and he had very small hay nets four or five times a day and he was turned out every day in a sort of paddock with not too much grass. So we really worked hard on, on his weight as well as his fitness. And um, he sort of, he never looked back after that. He he sort of got it. And I have to ask, did you have to uphold your side of the deal for, for the trainer? Did you have to help him out with grid work for his racehorses? Yes, I did. Um, I'm not sure it did any good, but um, I think he found it quite interesting at least. And uh, it was when he was at his sort of peak, really, Michael Dickinson. And, and I will be forever grateful to him for helping me in a way change my whole um, idea and, and sort of concept of getting horses fit. And I, I never changed it from then. All the horses were, got fit that same method. And you mentioned then the Europeans in Horsens in Denmark in 1981. Was that your first team appearance as well as Priceless's, Ginny? Yes, that was my first um, senior competition. And we had Malcolm Wallace, you know, mega uh, chef to keep. And I was put number one. And I <laughs> I remember on the morning of the um, of the competition, it was thick fog. And the other slight hiccup was um, when I got to the start of phase B, the steeplechase, and while Malcolm Wallace was there to meet me, <laughs> he just made me laugh, um, saying, well, I can't see the first fence, so I'm sure you'll find it. And then they, um, they did the countdown in whatever language Horsens was. What is it? Horsens. Danish, maybe? Danish, that's the one. Anyway, I said to Wal, Does it has he said go yet? And Wal said, I, I, I don't know quite. And, and so there was a sort of slight moment of, well, has he said go or hasn't he said go? And well, so we'll just go anyway. So off I went. And they the, the course actually before we we started um, on, on the Friday, there were two or three fences that were, we felt physically impossible to jump. And there was a massive um, meeting between the chef de keeps and uh, they actually changed the course the night before. I was quite grateful because I was number one. <laughs> um, anyway, he, he, he was great. And um, he, he gave me my first sort of taste, if you like, of being on a team. And it was, it was magical. Um, and, you know, Wall was amazing. Um, everyone was amazing. Um, so it, it was a wonderful first kind of time out, if you like. Sounds like it was quite a week and quite an experience. And skipping slightly ahead in Priceless's career, you went to your first Olympics with him in 1984 in Los Angeles. What are your memories of that big occasion? Well, 
I suppose terror, <laughs> terror of, of getting it wrong, uh, terror of making a mistake, uh, letting the team down, letting the country down. So I, th I think it was, um, yes, uh, it, it was an amazing experience, um, but it was also pretty overwhelming. Um, and again, it, it was fantastic to to be with people like, you know, Wall, who I, you know, by now knew well, and, and also the other riders, a great sort of team spirit going on. It was a very kind of odd experience, but a, a, once it was over, the most amazing experience. And um, again, I, I was number one to go. And I, again, was early in the morning. And actually, we got terribly held up going to San Diego for the cross country. So it was obviously a different place to the dressage. And I thought, my goodness, we're going to miss this. Anyway, luckily, we didn't. And he was just unbelievable the horse absolutely unbelievable thank the lord i i didn't make a mess up and in the end it all turned out um like a sort of dream i think <laughs> um but you know from a little kind of rather common dare i say it horse from from devon to end up actually competing at the olympics was a, a dream beyond you you can't comprehend yeah, and, and not just to compete, but he won the individual bronze, the team silver. And, and in the course of that, you became the first British woman to win an individual Olympic eventing medal. So quite a quite a history-making occasion. And two years later, you and Priceless went out to the World Championships in Gawler, Australia. That must have been quite a trip to be taking a horse all the way around the world for that competition. Do you know, it was, it was extraordinary. Uh, we had to quarantine on an island to start with, then we moved to, you know, near where we were competing Gawler. We were there for, I think, six weeks or something extraordinary. The sort of challenge really was to try and keep the horses occupied without overworking them and indeed us, because we were all used to riding six or seven horses a day. And we've, we've got one. And so there was a lot of fitness regime going on. And I think everybody tried to get, keep as occupied as we could and then there was a big decision of, of whether we should run at a test event before Gawler started and I was a bit concerned about the ground and I thought goodness you know we've come all this way so I didn't run Priceless and in hindsight maybe it was a mistake because he was sort of nearly over the top by the time the competition started and I don't know whether you've ever seen um, the video, but he was um, last to go and he <laughs> he nearly just got rid of me at fence one. He sort of banked it, that the sun was quite low and he kind of banked it. And, and that was, that, I mean, talk about having kittens and it was only at fence one, but it, it was a very, very testing competition, I think for, all countries and horses and riders and support backup teams because we were there for so long unused to not you know riding lots of horses and also trying to keep fit and occupied so it was a pretty unbelievable experience i must say yeah and the other extraordinary part of that story is that they held an alternative world championships that year too in Bialybor in Poland you went there and won double gold there as well on nightcap and then you won Burley that autumn as well on Murphy <laughs> himself and when I think about that the thought of someone having that sort of horsepower and level of dominance in the sport to be able to do that is is just extraordinary it must have been a, a crazy year and a crazy autumn for you it was and and I think um only thanks to all the team at home um, who kept the horses ticking over for us while we were away for weeks. And uh, the next thing you know, we were off to Bialybor and, you know, Nightcap was, was at the top of his form and he was extraordinary, his performance there. And then dear old Murphy, it was a bit of a long shot, but um, he, he was only seven when he went to Burley. And, you know, I quite expected to hopefully, you know, put up a reasonable performance, but it was in a way, thanks to him, he won it because I think I sort of lost control three from home. And had he not 
taken control, I don't think we'd have been quite inside the time. So hats off to Murphy because he basically won it himself, frankly. <laughs> and you mentioned the team back home and, and I was going to say that that you know when you were away for so long that team must have been absolutely instrumental in your success who were the key people for you at that time well Alison um was who actually went on um to to work with William Fox Pitt it, it was just a, a whole team of of wonderful mainly working pupils actually because um, you know, in those days, funding was was pretty raw, and we, we had a, a fantastic team of working pupils and a fantastic vet, Don Attenborough, and, and they, you know, they they knew the system. You know, Dot, dear Dot Willis, was very instrumental. Although she was in fact uh, with us in Australia, and Mum as well, Heather Holgate. I think that they were so wonderfully loyal and super in control of the situation that it all sort of seemed to work and to be able to come back and um get on those two horses having been away for so long was was quite an extraordinary thing for our team back at home to have managed to keep it all going for us all you know um and you know nightcap again we, we didn't really think that he would win but he he became the bride instead of the bridesmaid um and and i think that um sadly i mean it, it was it was what was now the rolex slam i think you know three in a row but that wasn't invented in my day so i didn't get the rolex watch unfortunately but um it was quite an amazing time and you dare hardly blink because you thought the, the bubble was going to burst in in two seconds um, <laughs> But it's, it's, it's honestly, it, it was all due, genuinely due to everyone back at home. That, that was that was that was possible. Mm, well, I'm sure you're being too modest there, Ginny, because I imagine you probably had something to do with it as well. But for sure, it's it's definitely a team effort when that sort of thing comes off. And I think the thing that Priceless is most famous for, to come back to him, is that he never had a cross-country jumping fault in that whole career, which is just not something that you can say of, of many horses at all. What made him such a special cross-country horse? Um, I think he he was just gutsy and well let's face it, I was fairly inexperienced when we, we went to Bramham together and then our first Burley together. And I can tell you uh, he, he put up with a lot of mistakes <laughs> and he was just a soldier. Um I suppose together he, he became unbelievably accurate thanks to Lady Hugh uh Russell. Uh, with her dots that she used to put on cross-country fences and she made us you know if you didn't jump the dot you might as well gallop back home because that was what you had to do so it was sort of in a way thanks to her that he he became incredibly accurate and i suppose me too and so i think he he managed to get inside the time and indeed remember he carried 11 stone 11 and and had the roads and tracks and steeplechase as well because of his accuracy and because you could turn on a sixpence and jump a corner followed by a corner or a very difficult angled rail. There was one at um, Burley, I remember, called the Brandy Glass, which I don't think anybody jumped before I got there. But I thought I was late because my stopwatch had stopped. So I had to jump it. But there wouldn't be many horses that you'd have a go at that one on. And through his accuracy and reliability, he found a way of, of getting inside the time, you know, hats off to him, really. And you mentioned there about having to carry a certain weight, which is not something we really know about in the sport now. And I'm sure that younger riders aren't really aware of at all. Just explain what the rules were in those days. Well, you had to carry a minimum of 11 stone 11. So I carried two stone dead, dead weight. So I couldn't physically put, pull my saddle off the horse myself. And that was the, you know, levelling with men and women, which was in a way amazing because we really were level. But on the other hand, you know, you could argue the point carrying dead weights has its disadvantages to live weight. So that was the rule and that's what we did. And, um, you know, he, he, he managed it. And we, we had a, a special weight cloth uh, invented 
which had two hooks that hooked into the pommel of the saddle to try and keep the weight off his withers. And, and you know, the steeplechase as well, you know, it, it was a true test of, of, of stamina. Um, I have to say, I'm I'm very relieved they they. I never sadly competed when they removed the steeplechase, because it was my least favorite part of the whole thing. And I have to admit, um, having done the steeplechase on the roads and tracks, grabbing a fag off whoever was standing at the end of the steeplechase to uh, enjoy a cigarette on the on the next ten kilometers with my bottle of Ribena. Um, but. Uh, I have to say, I never did enjoy the steeplechase. So it was, I was, I was well relieved when I got into ten minute halt box, um, ready for my briefing. <laughs> Those really are memories of a different era in eventing, yeah. and really interesting because, as you say, in fact, that carrying of weight maybe almost disadvantaged women because, as you say, it was it was dead weight rather than sort of moving weight that that men might be able to to get nearer to. But so interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ginny, and giving us that insight into Price's career. Well, you're very kind to ask, and he's an absolute hero. So thanks so much. Hello, I'm Lucy Elder, Senior News Writer at Horse and Hound, and I'm kicking off our news segment this week. I'm joined by my colleague, Horse and Hound's dressage editor, Polly Bryan, who's been out reporting at Britain's first international dressage show of the year, the inaugural Wellington CDI Three Star. Now, this was such an exciting show and a really important one as well. And we saw some of the sport's real sort of big guns in action as the countdown to Tokyo really steps up. Polly, you were there. Tell us about it. How was it? Oh, it was so great to be back out reporting in real life. I have to say, I wish the rain could have chosen a different day to come down, Um, (laughs) but it was really lovely. Although saying that actually, it's amazing how much we've all got used to reporting remotely. Um, The live stream from Horse and Country works perfectly on the Grand Prix day where I reported from home. That worked really, really well. Although it was interesting on that day because the live scores, the live scoreboard um, was actually coming through about two movements ahead of the live stream itself. Oh, wow. Um, so I was seeing the scores pop up. And for example, in uh, Charlotte Jardin and Mount St. John Freestyle's test, they had a they had a big spook in their second PF. And I saw the scores drop coming through for about, you know, at about a three and a two and a four before I saw that happen. And I knew disaster was imminent and I was sort of sitting there wondering what it was going to be but um it was good from an educational point of view to see the scores and then watch the movement and see you know try to work out why they've been marked that way but of course nothing beats being there in person and being able to watch the riders warm up and you know feel that thrill as the big names come into the arena and everyone gathers around to watch from a you know safe distance of course um and, and the collective groans when someone does make a mistake it's and there's nothing there's really nothing like it it's true isn't it and I felt quite strange when I went back out to do my sort of first few bits of reporting as you said we've all got so used to covering things from home and technology I mean I remember even maybe four or five years ago in news writing about virtual school boards for the first time and it being such a thing and now we've all got so used to how good technology is that we can cover things remotely but as you say nothing nothing beats being there in person and and seeing things on you know in real life and in 3d and, no. and not not on a screen definitely not um so who who impressed who was there and who was really exciting to watch so of course the you know biggest names were of course charlotte Dujardin and carl hester and it was actually charlotte's ride geo aka pumpkin her little chestnut gelding who was undoubtedly the star of the show he came through to beat the more experienced mount st john freestyle in the grand prix he also won his first ever grand prix special with over 81 percent he has actually performed the special once before um at one of the practice test events held at hartbury last summer if i remember rightly it was bucketing down that day as well I think but um, (laughs) it was yeah Uh, but this was the first time he's done that test in a proper competition we don't really have very many specials in this country ordinarily Um, but of course this year it'll be the Grand Prix special deciding the team medals in Tokyo so um, as a result more shows and riders are prioritizing it in the run-up and he Gio to me watching him he looks like 
he's on a sprung floor. It's do, mm. do you know what I mean? He's so yeah. He's, oh my gosh, coiled spring is yeah. a phrase made for him. And um, I actually I watched Charlotte warming him up. I watched her bring pumpkin into the warm up ring, and honestly, watching him trotting around that that indoor arena on a long rain, rising trot amongst the likes of uh, Carl's on Vogue and Gareth Hughes's Santano, Emil Fori's ride Dono DiMaggio. Honestly, pumpkin looked like a pony club pony got lost. Oh. But wow. Once he got in that arena, he looked the business. He's he's still green. Of course, he's still green. And it does show in, in some parts. But he's 10 years old. And this won't be the finished article yet. But it's very, very exciting. That is why it's so exciting, isn't it? I love I love watching these super, you know, our wonderful superstar combinations with the championship experience and that we see out at the big shows like Olympia and things like that coming back. And, and then I find it almost more exciting seeing those slightly younger ones coming through as well and thinking oh my goodness how good are you definitely, gonna be definitely definitely and actually this show was amazing for that in particular one um that I really wanted to mention was um Gareth Hughes's Santano Van Hoff Olympia who I really think is one to watch he's now come up with some really quite serious scores both here and uh, in Belgium a few weeks ago. I remember interviewing Gareth about him when he won the PSG at Hartbury in 2019. And Gareth told me then that riding him was a bit like sitting in a washing machine because Sintano has these big long legs that are all over the place and he's very bouncy and wiggly. And now, as you'd expect, he's really strengthened up. He's much more in control of his body. He is looking so super talented. I'm really, really excited for that one. Yes, I love watching him on Santano, but I really, really enjoyed as well seeing his freestyle on um, on KK Dominant. And we know with Gareth Hughes, I, I always love watching his freestyles because he often picks quite dancey music. Um, he's often he's really interesting to talk to about his choices as well for the music. And this one really didn't disappoint either. I hadn't personally seen this one before, but we've got some Little Mix in there. We've got some, um, I think there's some Paloma Faith and uh, Sigma going on there as well. What was that yeah. like to watch when you were there, Polly? Oh, it was a really, really fun test to watch. And this little stallion, uh, the Kroll family is dominant. He's done a couple of tests before, but not for a while. He has been out at Grand Prix in the past but he's still he's still green he's still inexperienced at this level he did so well and as you say the music was so much fun it was really really good to watch and I, I did say to a few people it was probably the closest thing to a night out any of us have had in a while I think that's probably why I really enjoyed it I thought <laughs> oh gosh I can picture myself you know on holiday or a night out or somewhere yeah. lovely <laughs> rather than in yeah. rainy Hampshire but uh <laughs> rainy yeah. Hampshire was also great fun too absolutely so going back, let's talk now about Charlotte and the Superstar Freestyle. Oh, freestyle did look amazing. She has come on so much in the last year. She's much, much stronger. You know, her good bits, which are a lot, are really, really seriously good now. Um, and even some of her less good bits, which were never exactly bad, are really improving as well. Um Charlotte described the Grand Prix at Wellington as a learning curve for her. She actually opted not to do an arena walk with Freestyle before the test. And you can hardly blame her. The mare's travelled all over the world. She's known for being pretty unflappable. But she did spot something outside the ring in her second PF in the Grand Prix. Um, we're not really sure exactly what it was. Probably a board or a banner or something like that. And Charlotte really had to coax her back into the line of the test. And unfortunately, it you know caused the marks for both that movement and the next sort of two or three to plummet it. But, you know, the rest of the test was amazing. To still get a shade under 78% is pretty amazing. And as Charlotte said, it's important that the blips happen here rather than at an Olympics or Europeans. And of course, it just goes to show things are not perfect every time, even for the likes of Charlotte and Carl, who had a similar incident in his Grand Prix special with En Vogue and the uh, gelding actually spooked it in the same place as Freestyle had done the day before. A lot of the big names actually had the odd error in their tests across the two days, actually. And of course, a lot of that is down to being quite ring rusty from lockdown, as, as of course many, many people are, most people are. But it's also a really important reminder that these horses are not machines um and no matter how predictable one might think dressage is it, it does have its drama it's it's not predictable all of the time no it's interesting 
this has come up quite a few times in news recently as well. I was sat in on the Aintree's Grand Women's Summit uh, back in April and Pippa Funnel was there and was saying about the importance of things not being perfect every time and learning from mistakes. And she actually referenced a time she had a stop at the lake at badminton years ago and if it hadn't happened there it would have happened at the olympics mm. and so it was interesting to be watching wellington as well and seeing as you said exactly as you said there people sort of learning from even even the, the, the very very best in the world exactly it it still happens you know carl carl scores 73 percent for his grand prix special which is still a, an incredibly good score but obviously lower than what he would have been hoping for and expecting because he had that one, you know, pretty major blip. Um, but it is better for it to happen here. These horses haven't been out and about very much at all in the last year um, and nor of the riders. So I think it's all about getting back into the swing of things and um, hopefully onwards and upwards. And there were some pheasants as well. Um, I saw I watched one of those join join in freestyles freestyle, and there, she was fabulous. She just carried on, didn't she? Bless there her. were some rather intrepid pheasants that uh, did make their presence known um, and accompanied quite a few different riders through uh, parts of their tests. Actually, uh, despite being shooed away at various <laughs> intervals by Wellington's David Sheeran, it was um, quite entertaining to watch. There was a running joke among some of us there on the day that they might have been sent in as spies by our European rivals <laughs> uh, luckily our guys weren't phased um, Carl Hester's yard is known for being home to not only horses and uh, and dogs uh, but also pheasants and peacocks and guinea fowl and chickens um, and they tend to roam around the arena there so uh, Charlotte and Carl's horses were completely unfazed by a new arrival into the arena and it's crossed straight in front of Charlotte's path as she came to do her one-time changes on Mount St John Freestyle in her freestyle and it didn't stop her busting out 19 pretty flawless changes which is uh, some going actually with a pheasant right in front of you. It was quite it was even more impressive to watch and I didn't think watching that test could be even more impressive but that, that <laughs> made it and I love I really love in freestyles freestyle how with the chimes in the in the music on pirouettes and that nod to her mm. london 2012 uh freestyle routine with Vallegro and the chimes in that i yeah oh, yeah i completely parts. agree it mm. is a beautiful test to watch um we actually haven't seen it very many times she she debuted it at, at heartbury in 2019 um with the super score there as well and um you know i could probably count on almost one hand the number of times she's performed it since of course because of you know covid and the lockdowns um so even though she's now had it for a couple of years we haven't seen it very much and it's so lovely to see her perform it when we can and who else impressed and were there some nice up-and-coming horses to watch did you think oh definitely i i always love watching the irish pair kate dwyer and snowden fabergé fabio has shy horse in his breeding and his feet really are like dinner plates but my god can he passage and piaf as well as the rest of them and he always has such a lovely expression on his face um they actually helped secure ireland's olympic team spot back in 2019 at the europeans i really hope they're going to have a spot on that tokyo team come july and it was also really interesting and exciting to see Fiona Bigwood out with Horton's Delicato. Delicato is, of course, the former ride of Carl Hester, his championship ride in 2018 and 2019. Um, and now Carl is focusing his attentions on Vogue. It's great that Dell has gone to another fabulous British rider like Fiona. He's a really beautiful horse. Having not actually seen him in competition since Olympia in 2019, I'd, I'd forgotten just how stunning he is in the flesh. Um, and they make a really, really great pair, actually. They really suit each other. They're already scoring very well I'm sure they'll continue to improve and just the other one I wanted to mention as well actually was um, Laura Tomlinson's upcoming Grand Prix horse Fallaton he is super spicy and uh, watching him in the arena I won't be the only one reminded of Mistral Horace her London Olympic medalist Fallaton shows so much potential um, I'm really excited to see more of him in the future as well wonderful and so tell us, Polly, why was this show significant and what happens next? As, I mean, the road to Tokyo really is its ticking on now. 
Mm. Oh my gosh, I can't believe how soon the Olympics are actually. Um, yeah, this show was really significant. It, um, it wasn't a selection trial as such, but it was uh, an observation trial, um, a selection event, if you like. The selectors were there um, and it will definitely have proved pretty significant when it actually does come to picking the team. Um, and in terms of what happens next, well, I know that Carl Hester, for one, is planning to head to France for the uh, show in Compiègne next week to have another stab at the tests and obviously hoping to add a really good score to the record. Um, we're also expecting to see Laura Tomlinson out there as well on her top ride and her sort of main Olympic hope, Rose of Bavaria, as well as, fingers crossed, Spencer Wilton, who sadly couldn't make his long-awaited comeback with Supernova um, at Wellington because of the flare-up of his back injury. I spoke to Spenny last week, though, and he was having some treatment that should hopefully mean he can get back in the saddle just in the nick of time to get out to France. So fingers crossed that he can get there We'll have we'll have several really good combinations out there, um, and there's also uh, the show at Le Mans in France a couple of weeks after that, um, and then we're really getting into the sharp ends of uh, you know the time that these combinations have to impress the selectors. So as you said, it's all getting close and it's all to play for. Wonderful, thank you very very much, Polly, for filling us in on Wellington. Time now to catch up with the rest of this week's stories. Hello, I'm Alex Robinson from Horse and Hound and for our news review this week I'm joined by my colleagues, Horse and Hound's news editor Eleanor Jones. Uh, hi Elle, how are you doing? Yeah, really good, thank you. All a bit, um, having spent the whole of April uh, desperate for rain and moaning about it, we've now literally had like monsoons every day in May so far. <laughs> we were driving to a show on Sunday, you know, it was like biblical so you could hardly see through it and you're mm. like, really don't know if I fancy jumping in this. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily it eased off. It was actually perfect timing. It eased off just as we got there. Oh, brilliant. That's what you need. And our senior news writer, Lucy Elder, is still with us. Uh, how are you, Lucy, and how's your week been? I'm very well, thank you, Alex. I've been out reporting this week at Aston Le Walls, which had a really exciting couple of four-star sections with lots mm-hmm. of riders there that are sort of, well, are real top riders. It was really exciting to see that, you know, real top-level sports back again and um, lots of people there who are, will be hoping for tickets to Tokyo or the Europeans or hopeful fingers crossed if we have five star a five star running anywhere this year as well um, that was a great great event this week wonderful so Eleanor we're coming to you first on this week's news and you've been working on a story about grants uh, to help businesses reopen and the how there's actually been some confusion about the wording used can you explain a little bit about what's gone on here yeah, so it was it, it was one of those ones that it seemed really great news when we first saw about it. The government has put these restart grants out, which is um, for, it includes riding scores. It's businesses in the non-essential retail, hospitality, leisure, personal care and accommodation. And it's one-off grants of up to 18 grand. So it was, oh, brilliant. You know, if this, if this money's out there for riding scores, we want to shout about it. And then when you look at the guidance, it says, it specifically states in the, in the businesses that might be eligible, indoor riding schools. So we thought the story was going to be, you know, why? This seems a bit silly that when all riding schools have had to close, it seems a bit silly that the indoor ones are the only ones eligible. And then the government um, spokesman told us uh, just before we went to press that actually in both indoor and outdoor riding schools uh, may well be eligible for this grant. Okay. And is it likely there'll be um, a question business owners who will benefit from the government's clarification here? Um, yeah, hopefully, because this does sound like then that um, that all riding schools should be able to claim this. The, the only um, possible hurdle might be that the government has left it up to councils to allocate this money. And because the list does say indoor schools, it it could well be an issue, as we've already heard in at least one case, mm-hmm. that the council is saying, oh, no, you haven't got an indoor school, so you're not eligible. Um, so if anyone is having those issues, please get in touch. But hopefully riding schools who have had such a tough year should be able to apply for this grant, which should then make a real difference. Brilliant. Thank you, Eleanor. And Lucy, you've been working on a story this week about the easing of restrictions. And as we move into the new stage of the government's roadmap out of lockdown, what are some of the main changes in the equine sector? Yes, this is really exciting news for riding schools, uh, equestrian venues, racing, point to points in England. Uh, So the latest step 
essentially means that um, we can use indoor schools again, uh, which is Eleanor was saying has been a sort of a big issue for for riding schools and for equestrian venues. And we also are welcoming back spectators to shows so again at organisers' discretion and things and in line with strict protocols as all these easings are. It's not free for all for everybody, but it is really exciting to to see, you know, things starting to get a little bit more back to normal. Um and uh, which is hopefully things are heading now in, in, in the right direction. And is this just for England or are there changes in the other UK nations too? So while the big changes that came in were for England um, on the 17th of May, there are changes across all the UK nations this week. So again, it's a gradual easing to one degree or another. Um, outdoor sports now permitted in Northern Ireland and they've got some further changes planned. Um, mainland Scotland as well, has most of that has now moved up to level two restrictions, which means more competitors are allowed at events for, for most of Scotland there. And Wales's restrictions have been lifted as well, again, to the extent of allowing um, more people at shows, but they have still got restrictions on, on numbers, which means that some of the bigger events aren't able to go ahead but hopefully everything again as I said a little moment ago is is heading in the right direction fingers crossed touch wood Mm. yeah I know we're all so excited that you know we are getting back to normal but what's kind of the general advice from from industry figures and and yeah what what should we all be kind of looking to do to, to stay safe so as I sort of touched on at the beginning there while I'm you know, be merrily writing this week about spectators returning, fans returning, indoor schools allowed, no restrictions on, you know, numbers allowed competing in indoor schools and things. There are, of course, caveats to go with that. There are restrictions, you know, you've got to be sensible. Um, We've heard from industry figures that, you know, we're not out of the woods just yet and we can't forget there is still the pandemic going on. Um, So, yeah, it's all about doing things safely, making sure before you go that, if there are any additional restrictions or tickets that you have to apply for in advance, which I think is for most places is, if not all places that are, that is a requirement. So they know who's on site and things um, is making sure that, you know, you don't just show up on the day and hope for the, hope for the best, but check before you go, be sensible when you're there. And, um, and let's look forward to a really good summer of, of equestrian sport. Fabulous. Thanks so much to Lucy and Eleanor for joining us today. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by Frosty Tap from Roco ES Limited, leaders in frost-free technology. Introducing the C1000 Yard Hydrant, fresh mains water all year round, no matter what the temperature outside. We hand you over now to our veterinary experts. Over to you, Andy. Hello everyone, my name's uh, Andy Fisk-Jackson. I'm one of the surgeons at the Royal Veterinary College. Uh, I'm joined by uh, Rick Farr from Farr & Percy. Hello Rick. Hi, how are you? Not too bad, thank you, not too bad. Good. So today we thought we'd just look at nucleus antigraphy, better known as bone scan. Now bone scan's a, a very interesting modality. It's been around for quite some time. This could be good for all sorts of things for our patients. Number one, because you know it, it detects uh, bony related abnormalities, that's all good, and also, it, it can scan over a large area. So it's quite conceivable to do even a whole body bone scan on a horse um, and um, therefore be able to sort of scan multiple regions and a bit like a sort of screen for abnormalities. But there are some really important caveats to all that. It is just as I say, it's a bone scan. If your horse has a soft tissue related abnormality, then it's um, not really going to be any good at all. It may show up changes where there's a ligament or tendon attaching to a bone and we may see some changes there but it's important to understand that it may not uh, give you an an answer and that has to be borne in mind right from the start communicated right from the start that whilst bone scan could be fantastic it also could give us um, uh, no further information at all so how bone scan starts your horse is um, admitted and, and again a conversation will always have gone on between um, your vet, so Rick and, and myself, and, uh, and you'll say, look, you know, I've got a lameness or, or whatever, poor performance, maybe a horse with a bad back, um, that I'd like to refer him. Would you agree, Rick? That would be the normal... I, 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 I do, definitely. It, the normal kind of referral kind of process, I think from our point of view, sometimes it comes where you've started to do some blocks or started to do some investigations. You seem to be going round and round in circles. 
And I think some of that time referral is always an option because I to get another pair of eyes on the lameness but also if you're thinking about these more higher-ended lamenesses things that are difficult to block or you can't block and we've I think as clinicians we've all had those cases where you've got a youngster which is particularly flighty or nervous um, and there is a safety aspect to sometimes blocking um, and I think that is is also a, a good enough cause sometimes to consider going down the syntigraphy yeah. um, kind of route. Yeah, I completely agree. And and this is this is those are Rick's really um, elegantly uh, outlined those sort of things. Obviously, you know we've talked um, about uh, nerve blocks, and you would have um, you'd be aware of nerve blocks. But that does involve putting a needle in the horse's leg, and um, they don't like that very much quite often. Um, and especially if you keep doing it. And and essentially, you know, bone scan can give you some, uh, give you an answer um, uh, where you know you've you've failed in that uh, respect to get a definitive answer with blocks, or it's too dangerous to do so. So your horse will be referred in, and um, one critical aspect um, is we are more likely to get a result if the injury is irritated or there's the the horse is in work. That's always, that might seem counterintuitive because if everything was tickety-boo and your horse is in work, then you're not going to probably need a bone scan. But being completely out of work reduces the chances of uh, the, something showing up on the bone scan. So you need to bear that in mind. So complete box rest isn't great. Of course, if your horse is suspected of having a fracture, then, then you have no option. So um, what will happen is um, your horse will have come in and be weighed. And on that morning, your horse has a catheter put in. Um, which has some um, always has risks associated with doing that. Uh, then your horse will be lunged if it's appropriate to do so. You'll have um, quite uh, warm rugs on over, overnight, trying to get it nice and warm, get the blood flowing because that's key to making uh, a bone scan more uh, useful to us. And then the radioactive substance is injected intravenously, um, and then we wait usually three hours before we start scanning. And that delay is to allow the radioactive substance and another drug it's combined with to combine with the cells which uh, are involved in remodeling so breaking down and laying down new bone exactly the sort of things that happen at fracture sites but also at areas of osteoarthritis or whether there's uh, changes where a ligament or tendon attaches to bones uh, and so forth and when then um, your horse is scanned using a big camera and that could take anything from one hour to two hours, maybe three hours, depending, of course, whether your horse is very good and stands still uh, nicely. Again, imaging, image quality is associated with whether he's completely still or not. And then that um, generates some uh, pretty pictures that uh, we look at. And what we're looking for is increased uptake, what we, what we literally call increased radiopharmaceutical uptake. And what that means is where because there's more blood flow to an area and more, more, more turnover of bone in that area, it'll show up as a dark area on the scan. Now that's all it does. It doesn't necessarily diagnose the condition. It's just saying in this region, there is something going on. And then we have to say, right, what's the best way now of determining the relevance of that? What is going on? And usually that's going to be X-raying the site. Um, if possible. If it's not possible, it might be ultrasound scanning the site or even potentially MRI, but that would be very unusual. Normally, we'll end up x-raying the site afterwards because we need to then determine you know, if there's a lot of uptake, for example, in the fetlock joint. Well, the natural thing, of course, is to x-ray the fetlock joint uh, itself. And we may be looking for uh, changes in the, the bone density. We might have osteoarthritis. We might have... Um, changes where uh, the suspensory ligament, for example, attaches. And all these things, um, the bone scan will have um, led us towards. Another common area where it might be the back, so kissing spines or sacroiliac region, um, or even the neck, osteoarthritis of the back, areas which you actually can't block. Um, and x-rays actually are less uh, able to determine the, the, um, the, the, the injury, the, the arthritis, uh, and if you've got the backup of bone scan, we can say, actually, what we see on x-ray is actually significant because, look, it's hot on bone scan. Mm, I think I think that's a really good thing for clients to be very aware of, that when it comes down to scintigraphy, it 
that is not the be all and end all. It will always probably invariably end up with further diagnostic imaging. So further mm. time and further workup and unfortunately further financial implications and everything. Uh, I have many people thinking that the bone scan, oh, we'll just go for a bone scan, then that's it. No, unfortunately, mm. it, it leads us in the right direction to do more diagnostics um, mm. rather than yeah, just absolutely. being a, on, a, one on its own. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important. We, you know, we try and relay that at the time. And it's always difficult just because it's, it's relatively expensive. Give an idea of cost, a half body bone scan, so that would be back pelvis and hind limbs, would be about uh, £1,300. Whereas a, a full body, um, not including the head, would be about £1,800. If we include the head, then we just tip over to £2,000. So that's a lot of money to spend. So that's why really being having a good relationship with, with our referring vets to have a good discussion about the merits of, of um, you know, how much we're going to scan and literally how much it costs is, 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 is determined by how many areas uh, we scan. But as I said right at the start, you have to be prepared for the fact it may not move us any further forward. Um, and that is obviously disappointing for both us and yourself, but you know, we have to think, well, okay, if that's happened, we move on to a, 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 an ulterior uh, plan, another plan. Roughly, roughly as a percentage, Andy, what do you say? Uh, I've definitely had cases that I've referred in that we've found nothing on scintigraphy. Mm. How many do you find do come up with absolutely nothing? Because I think, it, again, it's a large amount of money for people sometimes to commit to, to know that sometimes it might not come up trumps for you. Yeah, it's a good question, actually. And people have tried to look at that sort of, um, and um, it rather depends on whether you're breaking it down into, you know, your severely lame horse through to your you know, your back pain horse through to your uh, mild lameness. I think that generally considering the, the rule of thumb, the milder the clinical sign, the less likely it is we're going to see something. I think that's probably a better mm. way of putting it because if a horse is non-weight bearing lame because of a fracture, we are definitely going to see something. Yeah. You know, we're going to see where that is. But if it's a, oh, he's just not quite right, you know, he's maybe not doing a counter-pirette to the right just as well as he does to the left. Mm. If that's the only sign... The chances of picking something up on the bone scan, it's there. We may do. And so generally speaking, it's more about the, the severity of the signs um, which are going to yeah, dictate it. So, you know, if it's very mild signs, it might be about a 10, 20 percent chance of picking something up. If it's a fracture, if it's there, 100 percent. Fantastic. Cool. Good. One last thing I forgot. To say. So when, when the horse is had its bone scan, it's radioactive for 24 hours, which is um, a bit disappointing when we want to do stuff to it and you want to take him home. But uh, by law, we have to hang on to him until his radioactivity is reduced to a level which is safe. Well, brilliant. Well, that's, um, that sums up um, nucleus integrity or, or bone scan. Um, thanks, Rick, very much for, for joining us and for your input. My pleasure. Anytime. OK, and we look forward to seeing you in uh, some of the other podcasts. Bye bye. Thank you, Andy and Rick. That was the last of our Vets six-week mini-series and we have learned so much. Do go back and listen in if you haven't heard them all yet. Next week, we welcome back trainer Jason Webb to the podcast. He'll be talking about how to introduce horses to new places to ensure it's a positive experience for everyone involved. Our interview will be with the legendary Grand National winner Bob Champion and of course we'll have all the latest news as normal. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Horse and Hand podcast currently supported by Frosty Tap. Do join us again next week. Goodbye. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.